Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. We're back to just the two of us for this week, and I think for the rest of the year. We are, yeah. Going to be the the two-person show until we get rid of this 2021. Um, (laughs) But there's still plenty of news. It just keeps on coming, even though I really just want to watch holiday movies all the time. Yeah, I mean, you you know you've got an ally here in that fight. But even before we actually get to the meat of the show, we did want to uh, did want to mention something that actually just happened this morning, Thursday morning, as we are uh, as we are recording. The Senate Judiciary Committee unanimously approved a bill that would make access to Pacer, the online sort of federal court filing system, free to the general public. Uh, we have covered, there's actually, uh, I don't actually know the status of that case. We've talked about litigation um, to sort of make PACER free or at least uh, 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 improve access to it in some regard. And now Congress is getting involved. Again, this has only passed the committee stage, um, but uh, is, a, is a huge development for court watchers and especially sort of, uh, you know, advocates for yeah. access to justice and things like that. I mean, Big news for people in the legal news biz, but also for attorneys themselves, too. I mean, you can really rack up some pacer fees. So I think everybody in the legal world will really be watching that closely to see how it develops. Yeah. um, And there's already it's already touched off a little bit of a debate I saw among people who were like, you know, people are generally supportive of this because, you know, making it easier to read court filings is a good is an overall sort of worthwhile policy goal. I did see some people wondering if like it would lead to an increase in redacted filings. I mean, those still happen even now. Um, but, you know, if it were fully open to everybody, you think you, right. you might get some lawyers a little bit more eager to try and do that, um, which isn't an argument against doing this bill or anything. It's just like these are the kind of follow on consequences of if you pursue stuff like this. So we'll see where we'll, we'll see where it goes. I mean, it's just past committee. Uh, getting a vote on anything is very difficult these days, but it does have bipartisan support, so it's worth keeping an eye on. One more thing I want to mention before we get into some some other news stories um, is my chat that I have later in the show for everybody with Marco Poggio. He's one of our reporters who's been tracking a Supreme Court case about whether or not a couple of death row inmates can get um, a second look because they had ineffective counsel in several layers of their state court proceedings a little bit of a weedy thing to weigh out, but it could have big impacts on access to justice. So uh, an interesting one for him to break down for us. Yes, everyone stay tuned for that uh, and read Marco's coverage. Um, he always does a great job and always gets assigned really interesting cases to write about, and that's no exception. But uh, there is some news to get to first, um, and we are starting uh, with a... I wanted to to pose a, a sort of an open-ended question to you, Amber. Uh, okay. Can you envision a scenario where you lose $100 million in court and can still credibly claim a victory? You know, as a just normal human being, I'd like to answer, no, of course not. But years <laughs> on beats like um, antitrust or intellectual property makes me start to think there must have been much bigger numbers at play in this one. Yeah, it's all a matter of comparison. Um, and that is uh, really at the center of the case that I wanted to start talking about here today. Um, this um, uh, centers around the rightful ownership of nearly $60 billion worth of Bitcoin. Um, and there was a damages request for about $200 billion, And that is uh, that was playing out in Miami Federal Court this week, where an Australian computer scientist who actually claims to have invented Bitcoin uh, he sort of defeated claims that he stole 
a bunch of this valuable cryptocurrency from his late business partner. So there were lots of sort of interesting angles to parse out. Um, and there were a lot of eyeballs on it in the crypto community. Uh, I think I should put a should put a dollar in a jar somewhere for saying <laughs> crypto community. I, I apologize, but uh, it's an interesting case. So we should break it down. Um, is this like Al Gore invented the internet? Is it <laughs> that kind of vibe? Like, what what do we mean? The guy who invented Bitcoin? Yeah. So the reason that this got a lot of attention in, uh, you know, for people who care about cryptocurrency is that um, this guy, Craig Wright, um, is the computer, he's an Australian computer scientist, and he was the one who was on trial here. And he has made this claim before that he is that he authored this, this white paper in 2008 that basically sketched out um, what became Bitcoin. Um, now, the question in the, in the trial that we're going to talk about wasn't who invented Bitcoin, but it was kind of lingering on the periphery as this interesting subplot because... Wright is saying that he is sitting on a stash of over a million Bitcoins that are averaged at about $54 billion. And he was sued by the estate of uh, his former business partner, a guy named Dave Kleiman. And, you know, most people agree that only the inventor or at least an inventor of Bitcoin could have stashed that much of the currency that early on, like, like tracing back when it was not nearly this valuable. So there was a lot of intrigue as to sort of if he was ordered to to hand it over, this would be sort of a de facto, um, you know, endorsement of his claim to have invented it, which has been disputed within these circles. Um, but that's not the central question. It was merely it was a little bit more straightforward than that. But that's why it got such attention. Well, so give me the central question, then, if that's not the key thing we're sussing out here. Well, it's uh, just basically two guys. Well, it's one guy and a, a, a late guy's estate that are basically squabbling over who has the rights uh, to these monetary assets. It happens to be Bitcoin, but it could conceivably be anything for the purposes of, pro of a property dispute. So what you need to know is Kleiman's estate sued Wright in 2018, and those lawyers claimed that the two had been close business partners and that Wright basically stole these like million bitcoins and valuable intellectual property attached to it after Kleiman's death. Um, and at trial, the questions to Wright from Kleiman's attorneys basically centered around the extent of their relationship and Kleiman's role in actually inventing this, this cryptocurrency. The attorneys for Kleiman said that Wright repeatedly referred to Kleiman as his business partner and that the two had formed this joint venture but that Wright changed his story once litigation began and began saying stuff like, oh, you know, he was just really a really a friend of mine. We weren't business partners. Wright himself actually testified that he and that he and Kleiman were only close friends and that he that Kleiman maybe did some line edits on this 20 on this 2008 Bitcoin paper that I mentioned. Didn't write any code. Uh, didn't really contribute to inventing Bitcoin or anything like that. Why do I feel like I've seen this when it was a movie called The Social Network? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I mean it's, it's really got yes. those vibes. Really after the fact, uh, sort of sensitive uh, and, and incredibly valuable stuff um, that's then tied up in litigation. So to the extent they, they, they had some kind of business relationship because they had this joint venture, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but Wright's attorneys basically said, you know, through all of the discovery and all the evidence here, you can't point to any communications we have about talking about Bitcoin mining or inventing Bitcoin or anything like that. So that was sort of where the two camps uh, uh, came down when they were making arguments. 
But you did say that there was a $100 million verdict here. So how do we get to that? Yeah. So it's important to note, and as I, as you referenced up top, it's all the, the reason even such a large sum could be a, could be a win for Wright is that Kleiman's attorneys had asked for about $200 billion in damages, which could have been trebled by the jury if it, if it, if it came to that. But the jury that's basically... wild. Just yeah. on the face of it, that's wild. Yeah. Um, the jury found mostly in Wright's favor, and they only ordered him to hand over about $100 million um, relating to IP rights, not about not in Bitcoin, but $100 million relating to IP rights about this joint venture that they had founded. Um, you know, so it's basically this is a very large sum, but in the context of an even larger sum, it gave both sides some room in the press to basically say that they got the better end of the verdict. Here, um, here was uh, a quote from Wright's attorney, quote, the plaintiffs were asking for $600 billion plus in punitive damages, but the jury utterly rejected their claims. This is one of the great wins in the history of American litigation. The plaintiffs have suffered a total loss. <laughs> uh, some great lawyer speak right there. I don't know if I could... Uh, comment to the extent of, uh, you know, how great it is in the history of American litigation. But that's what he thinks. Look, it's a measured response is what that is. Just yeah, right. playing it straight down the middle. Now, on the other hand, um, you know, he says, you know, the plaintiff suffered a total loss. Now, on the other hand, Kleiman's attorney obviously focused on the payout to their joint venture, which is called W&K Information Defense Research, um, as basically a worthwhile outcome. He said, quote, we are immensely gratified that our client, W&K Information Defense Research LLC, has been awarded $100 million, reflecting that Craig Wright wrongfully took Bitcoin-related assets from W&K. This verdict sets a historical precedent in the innovative and transformative industry of cryptocurrency and blockchain. Now, you will notice there that he is uh, very careful in the phrasing about saying that he has to hand over Bitcoin-related assets, not the Bitcoin itself, because uh, like I said, this is about IP. But you can basically see where these two camps fall and where they have room to say that they each got a, got a measure of victory here. I do think uh, on the sort of bigger narrative of like, oh, this guy who says he invented Bitcoin is on trial and we're going to kind of see what that's all about was a little bit of a dud just because, you know, because of the facts of the case here. The question of his role in creating it, most people agree there was at least a consortium of people who probably came up right. with this. The court didn't really have a chance to get into that, even in a side door kind of way. Um, but it's a pretty interesting case, nevertheless. And I definitely wanted to shout out uh, our own Carolina Bellotta, who covered this trial for the last month. Her dispatches from it were really interesting, as her writing always is. So if that is interesting to you, I would definitely uh, check that out. So for our second story today, I actually want to circle back to a case we haven't talked about since 2019. Um, it was heard at the First Circuit this week and left the circuit court judges sort of scratching their heads about how to proceed. This one's about a Massachusetts state court judge that was criminally indicted after she helped an immigrant evade immigration and customs enforcement custody. And that case has wound its way to the First Circuit, as I said, with some pretty interesting questions about judicial immunity. I can't get enough of confused judges. You know, it's 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 nice to see when we spend our days sort of in the in the bowels of very complicated court docs to see it to see some appellate judges just say, oh, well, you got me. Sure. Um, it's only fair that they have that experience. Well. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I actually wasn't on the episode where we discussed this case a couple of years ago. And frankly, I don't listen to the episodes that I don't come on. Uh, wow, if I, wow, wow. If I can't hear my voice. If I can't hear my own voice, I don't want any part of it. Meanwhile, uh, no, I listen to every episode about 7,000 times, I'm, so I think we balance each other out. I'm kidding, of course, um, but I do think a refresher would be good. Um, yeah, Because so, yeah. this was, well, I mean, this is a really 
crazy set of facts here. Um, I was going to uh, yeah. say for any of the listeners who want to go back and get a you know full listen to this, it's episode 101. But I think mm-hmm. I'm really just saying that to you, Alex. Go back and listen to episode 101. <laughs> I um, listened to it. I was kidding before, but yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So here's what happened in a nutshell. In 2019, back when it was still the Trump administration, there was a lot of reports about federal immigration agents arresting people at actual courthouses. Critics absolutely hated this. They said it scared mm-hmm. undocumented people away from the justice system, and that would have a lot of follow-on problems. They'd be too scared yep. to show up for hearings or even to like report crimes or help investigators, that kind of stuff. Some states actually fought back formally. Um, one example was New York, and they issued a rule that barred these kind of arrests at their courthouses. Right. But this story happened in Massachusetts. So they didn't have that New York rule in place. State court judge Shelley Joseph and her court officer, Wesley McGregor, were indicted for allegedly helping an arrest target escape an ICE agent. They were hit with a bunch of charges, including conspiracy to obstruct justice, obstruction of justice, obstruction Mm -hmm. of a federal proceeding, and perjury. So basically, Judge Joseph was presiding over a hearing on drug charges against an undocumented immigrant when a plainclothes ICE officer came into the courtroom to execute this arrest warrant. She sent him outside of the courtroom to wait and allegedly instructed her court officer to escort the defendant out of back exit to evade that ICE agent. I remember that this this drew a lot of eyeballs because, like you said, it was in the heat of a very of a of a very sort of uh, aggressive uh, ICE enforcement campaign, which in some corners of the administration still uh, continues to this day. But that was a pretty explosive set of allegations. What is the litigation path? Like, what does that look like? Because we're, we're, we're at the first circuit now. How did that uh, how'd that go down? Yeah, so the judge and her court officer, like I said, were hit with a bunch of charges. Mm-hmm. In the lower courts, Judge Joseph argued judicial immunity and said it shields her from these kinds of charges. A district judge declined to dismiss them altogether, but basically kind of punted on that immunity question. And so what happened that we're talking about today is that Joseph and McGregor appealed that sort of mid-trial ruling mm-hmm. um, to the circuit court. We've talked in in different contexts, and it applies at different levels of the state and federal and even local judiciaries about um, the difficulties in like punishing judges for the things they do, um, and that that has different permutations depending on what court and all of this. But the question of immunity in in regards to um, a situation like this, where they're actively of uh, you know helping people. Um, who are appearing before them evade, um, you know, detention, um, put forth, puts forth a bunch of novel questions. And it sounds like that's what kind of uh, led to some headaches up there at the First Circuit, right? That's exactly the problem, Alex. So yeah. um, our own Boston court reporter, Chris Filani, covered this. I know pro se listeners know him well. He's been in the show many times. Um, he described that the judges were puzzled about several aspects of this case. Um the judges themselves called many parts of this unprecedented. Mm-hmm. So let's just get into a few of them. First off, the three-judge panel seemed unsure of which previous cases might have weight in helping it even decide this mid-case appeal because they couldn't identify any cases brought like this in any other by any other district attorney against a judge. It's mm-hmm. just weird and unusual for a DA to go after a judge in this manner, um, particularly with this sort of fraught fact pattern. Another weird wrinkle here was that the appellate court um, was deciding whether the actions taken by the judge and the court officer interrupted, quote, a pending proceeding. Mm -hmm. That's an element of obstruction of justice um, that falls into that charge. So the government claims that a civil arrest warrant 
that the government had for the immigrant in question is itself a proceeding. And mm-hmm. so there's questions about like, is that a proceeding or not? Yeah, or if and, you actually start the court here, if you have to, you have to start right, the court and, hearing. And obviously, there was a separate, unrelated court hearing going on. Going when on, all of this was happening. So yeah. is it is this actual arrest warrant its own unique, separate proceeding? So that's mm-hmm. unsettled territory too. Okay, uh, did they get to uh, what, what was sort of the tenor of the conversation around this? That's all very interesting. I'm most interested though in the idea of whether the judge herself is immune from this kind of action. Um, What was the discussion like on that point? Um, Likewise, confusing. Um, So Judge Joseph (laughs) argues that she acted fully within the scope of her judicial authority, and that's why she can't be criminally charged. Prosecutors disagreed, of course. They told the First Circuit that Joseph and McGregor did much more than simply not help ICE agents, that instead they actively impeded their ability to take the man into custody, and that made their intent corrupt, which would strip them of that judicial immunity. Mm -hmm. So during oral arguments, Judge Joseph's lawyer argued that corrupt intent doesn't matter when it comes to assessing whether her actions were shielded from this kind of prosecution because she was well within her rights to control the environment of her courtroom. Mm -hmm. One of the First Circuit judges did ask some pretty interesting hypos, though. Yeah, you can Um, imagine that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, judges love to do that. So the one here was, whether or not a judge who took an action because they were paid, say, $50,000 to do it would still have judicial immunity given their corrupt intent. So here's how Judge Joseph's attorney responded. We are not fighting the entire fight of all possible corrupt actions. We are fighting that under the facts in this indictment, and there is not a bribe alleged. She was acting within her powers as a state court judge. She was like, don't raise, don't come to me with hypothetical bribes, judge, with all due respect. Uh, Yeah. We, it sounds a little silly for them to have to have to have said that, but I no. think they were just trying to lay bare that there is a difference between yes, um, a flat out bribe where I don't think anybody would argue that that's okay um, mm. versus what happened here, which has a lot more gray area and nuance. In a bit of a simpler argument, um, McGregor, who's the the court worker, his lawyer pointed out that the state's Supreme Judicial Court has ruled that court officers do not have to comply with civil immigration warrants. So his lack of compliance can't be criminalized. Mm -hmm. And the quote from the attorney was, he didn't block the arrest forever. He let this person out the back door of the courthouse. Yeah. If there's case law on court officers specifically, um, I mean, that's probably, that's certainly helpful to his case. But I'm very intrigued to see what happens um, on this question of the judge's immunity. Absolutely. I think this is going to be one to watch because it is, in fact, so rare. So all of these puzzling questions... It's going to be um, some of the first precedent we have on these kind of issues. So definitely one we'll keep tracking. On Wednesday, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case involving two Arizona death row inmates that could redefine how claims of ineffective trial counsel in state courts are heard in federal courts. The ruling could have life or death consequences for many who argue they didn't get a fair trial. Here to tell us about the case is Law360 reporter Marco Poggio. Welcome back to the show, Marco. Hi, thanks for having me again. It's great to be back. Marco, I'm always glad to have you on the show because you cover such interesting things on your beat. And this uh, Supreme Court case we're going to talk about definitely is in that bucket. It's about two death row inmates who say they didn't receive 
competent legal counsel. And I know that um, there's a lot of nuance here with their cases. So can you just give us sort of a top line overview of what they were convicted of and what happened as they moved through the court system? Yeah, so you have these two Arizona men, uh, Barry Jones and David Ramirez, and they were both convicted of murder and, and other charges, and then they were sentenced to death. Jones was found guilty of murdering uh, his girlfriend's uh, young daughter. And uh, in his case, his attorney was appointed by the state, uh, failed to challenge some basic discrepancies in the timeline of the events, uh, which really made up the prosecutor's case, which was kind of shaky, you know? Uh, so the attorney failed to find some holes in testimony that was kind of crucial to the to the case. Um so he failed to see that. Then the in post in uh, post uh, conviction uh, review, uh, another attorney uh, failed to investigate the defense strategy. F- uh, failed to see like the faulty uh, defense arguments that um, the Jones uh, lawyer used. So he basically missed his chance to bring up ineffective counsel claims at that stage, which is what is required by by state law. You need to do it in state court before you go to a federal court. So that was basically the gist in that case. Uh, In the Ramirez case, um, he was, um, he's uh, mentally uh, disabled and his attorney failed at sentencing, at the sentencing stage to raise that claim that he's he's, uh, intellectually disabled and you can't sentence an intellectually disabled person to death. Uh, So, you know, there were IQ scores that that showed that he was behind his peers. there were statements that basically described him as uh, he was unable to use utensils to eat uh, and stuff like that. So uh, his uh, attorney didn't get any of that. And then the post-conviction attorney uh, also didn't do any investigation. She just kind of let it go and didn't raise, uh, didn't point to uh, his uh, state-appointed uh, lawyer's uh, faulty defense. So those he also missed his chance to bring up the claim and. Uh, and basically, uh, under under federal law, he was barred from uh, from doing that later. But it did make it to the Ninth Circuit in both of these instances. And the Ninth Circuit identified that there were these deficiencies and sided with the two convicted men. Um, tell me Correct. a little bit more about exactly how that worked and what they were weighing to make that decision. So basically, um, both Ramirez and Jones were sitting in on death row for for really a number of years. And then in 2012, the Supreme Court decided the Martinez uh, v. Ryan case, which basically provided a path for um, inmates who were convicted in state court, who were, uh, who were claiming to be, to having been assisted by ineffective counsel, but didn't have a chance to raise those uh, claims in state court, to basically give them a chance to go before a federal judge and say, hey, I was... You know, I, I was uh, poorly uh, uh, represented by my lawyer and I, I shouldn't be sitting on death row for this reason, this other reason, this other reason. So finally, both Ramirez and Jones go before a federal judge, federal courts. And I mean, they have their cases have different timelines. But what really matters here is that the Ninth Circuit saw the evidence that they brought up in federal court pointing to the uh, ineffectiveness of, of their state-appointed uh, attorneys and said, yes, you, you have a claim here. You, have, you can claim that you were poorly represented and uh, probably you shouldn't be sitting on that row right now. So at least they ruled that for Jones. They said he should be released or, or retried. 
and, uh, and in Ramirez's case, they said that he has a claim and then, you know, the process kind of stopped at that stage because then Arizona turned to the Supreme Court. Well, let's get into that because that's sort of the main action we want to tackle today. We have this story of these two men who had this ineffective counsel. It wasn't presented at state court. They got a chance to say it to federal, a federal court and the Ninth Circuit agreed. Seems like the Ninth Circuit was relying on some precedent and thinks they did the right thing, but the story doesn't stop here. So so now we're at the Supreme Court, Marco. Let's talk about exactly what legal question is that they have to answer at this stage. Yeah, so, I mean, the case revolves around ETPA, which is a law that was enacted in 1996, uh, which bars federal courts from uh, holding evidentiary hearings on claims that defendants uh, failed to develop in state court. Um, so you have basically a general rule that says if you are incarcerated and you want to raise claims in state court, uh, you need to do that in state court before you can come to federal court to do that. So that's a general rule. You can't ask a federal court to look at what happened in state court until, unless the state court has, has looked at your evidence and has made a decision on it, basically. But then the uh, Martinez decision created an exception to that. It says, well, it doesn't matter what happened in state court, whether you be, you'll be able to, to raise your claims or not. If you can prove that you were assisted by, by poor counsel, then you can come before us. You, you can come before a federal court and bring your claim. You can have an evidentiary hearing and you, know, you, can, you can play your game there. So why does the state of Arizona say that that Martinez exception doesn't provide relief for these two men. Yeah, so Arizona is basically arguing that the Martinez decision was uh, was flawed, uh, that overstepped uh, Congress, and that Congress intended to rein in federal courts uh, uh, and basically limit their power to hold hearings for defendants who were convicted in state court. So Arizona is arguing, okay, the Martinez decision gave inmates uh, a chance to have a hearing uh, before a federal judge to bring up claims of ineffective counsel. But at the same time, Arizona is arguing uh, federal courts shouldn't be looking at the evidence, shouldn't be uh, considering the evidence, any evidence that was not developed in state court. Right. So it's like you can have the hearing, but we can only talk about things that were covered in the state court. Right. Which is like, it, it's kind of odd if you think about it. If you make a claim, you want to be able to, you need, you need to be able to substantiate it with, with the evidence. So, so I, how, I re- did the, how did the justices react to that? Because if you and I are both thinking it's a little odd, I would imagine those legal minds also had quite a few questions about how that would operate in, in the real world. Yeah, I mean, several justices, um, I mean, all the justices that spoke pretty much, were they sounded really skeptical about that, you know, about their vision. Um, Justice Thomas, it was actually one of the two judges who objected to Martinez, uh, to the Martinez decision in 2012. He said, uh, I mean, wouldn't it be odd that we allow a prisoner to, to make a claim in, in court, but, uh, but uh, we don't allow him to develop the evidence on the claim? And he said, like, to what end? Uh, and and uh, the chief justice was also kind of unconvinced. He said, like, it's a basic syllogism. He called it. It's a basic syllogism that... <laughs> yeah. If you allow a claim, then you can also allow the evidence. And then at some point, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, who was, you know, wasn't part of the court uh, when the, the decision came down, he said, um, 
basically says something like, well, I wasn't there. I mean, I, I, I wasn't, I didn't take part of the decision, but it, it seemed like the, the decision was carefully crafted and you, you could, uh, it would be like almost bizarre to think that the court didn't think I had at this issue, this very issue, like that, that the court would open up a path for defendants, for prisoners to, to have a hearing, but not to use the evidence. So, um, you know, the attorney for for Arizona was kind of on, on the spot there. Yeah, it sounds like uh, that attorney got some really tough questions. Um, yeah. But what about the attorneys on behalf of Jones and Ramirez? Did they just lean heavily on, hey, follow your Martinez precedent? Or did they have more to say as well? Well, I mean, the uh, Robert Loeb from ARIC uh, arguing for, uh, for uh, the defendant, he said, uh, well, you know, the court, yeah, he relied heavily on, on the Martinez decision. He said, well, this decision came down with the, uh, on a seven to two majority, uh, so it was kind of a you know a landslide, and he said we've been using courts have been using this precedent for over nine years, and uh, and uh, it, it it it's not the the main principle is we can't hold it against prisoners that their state appointed attorneys or these you know these state proceeding attorneys uh, fail to defend them, and also the post conviction attorneys were ineffective. We can't hold them accountable for that or responsible for that. You know, so it's basically it's basically a case that revolves around whose fault it is. I think this is a good way to sort of end this conversation um, with us just having sort of a last little discussion here about why this one's so important as we await this ruling. Why should attorneys be paying attention? And I think you were kind of getting at it there. I mean, a lot of this is who is responsible for bad lawyering? Right, 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 right. So, I mean, this case is important for that. I mean, um, basically, you know, in a way, Arizona wants Ramirez and Jones to pay the price for for two levels of of, of uh, incompetent uh, legal representation. You know, and uh, the attorneys are saying, "No, wait, you, you can't. We cannot do that." And that's that's a major hole in the right to a fair trial, uh, the right to to effective counsel, which is part of a right to a fair trial, which is protected by, protected by the Constitution, Sixth Amendment. So uh, the, the case is important because of that. And obviously there are uh, many defendants, many prisoners who are sitting on death row uh, who, you know, are really relying or hoping to bring up claims before federal courts. And they can only do so uh, through the Martinez Gateway. And this case, as a if it decided in a certain way uh, in Arizona's favor, has the potential uh, of uh, limiting uh, prisoners' uh, chances to uh, to get out of to get out get out of uh, death row uh, based on constitutionally valid arguments. Yeah, this is definitely one that people should have on their radar. I know it's such a busy Supreme Court term; it's easy to miss these these big, potentially sweeping rulings we could get. But I think this one should be added to everybody's calendar of things to watch. And I really appreciate you explaining it, Marco. Yeah, it's always, uh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks.
our show is something offbeat. And Alex, I think we both brought a few ideas we wanted to talk about. So let's just hit them. Yeah, there's lots of... Uh... Lots of stuff. We're, 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 there's some there's some holiday uh, hijinks that we'll talk about in a second. But I didn't want to let this very important news news item go by. Important to the canon of this show, uh, Amber. I don't know if you watched the Bachelor Men Tell All episode this week. You know that I did, of course. But uh, it featured someone, uh, one of the contestants, uh, presenting another with um, a subpoena or a lawsuit of some kind for uh, defamation of character. Um, don't talk badly about the pizza offered by the pizzapreneur. Yeah, the one guy seemed to be upset that the other guy was leaving bad Yelp reviews on his pizza place, which I think, in my novice opinion, falls pretty far short of uh, defamation. But that's beside the point, because I have uh, I have a feeling that this was not even real. But uh, I, that's... you know, they do add in a lot of like sort of little <laughs> gags in those shows that are just meant to be buzzy. And I got the same impression you did. It did not feel like a real process server. No, it felt like a central casting process server. Um, but anyway, I did like that they sort of threw up on the screen some of the actual reviews in question. Yes, made it yes. into the whole thing. It felt like a pro se offbeat segment right there in the middle of that show. I was going to say, I mean, as someone who has read Yelp reviews for content, I was in no <laughs> position to like roll my eyes at that or anything. Anyway, that was just a stupid thing that happened in Bachelor World. But we do have some uh, some interesting uh, uh, holiday related uh, goofy stories to get to. Yeah. You want to get us started on that, Amber? I do. I mean, it's December. So I wanted to talk to you about how much you know about the elf on the shelf. Well, um, I don't have children. Um, and so I've never really participated in elf on the shelf. Elf on a sh- elf on the shelf, a shelf. Is there a precision to the shelf? I, I don't know. I think it's the shelf, but okay. it doesn't. Well, really anyway, matter. and that wasn't a thing when I was a kid. Um, I just my parents just 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 used Santa, the invisible entity, as sure. a looming threat for good behavior. But well, I look, but Santa's, I know what it is. Santa's yeah. busy, and now there's a little elf toy. That's right. So let me give everybody the gist in case there are other listeners who don't have kids. I also do not have children, but I have a lot of friends that do, and many of them complain about this tradition. So here's how the little guy works. It's this toy that the parents buy. He's called a scout elf because the story you tell your kids is that the elf watches them during the day to make sure they're good and then flies away to Santa Claus at night and tells them, tells Santa, you know, the report. Yes. So the kids He's a snitch. Told, he's, a, he's a professional he's a snitch. snitch. <laughs> yes. So the kids are told that if they touch the elf, it loses its magic and dies. Mm. So every night while the kids are asleep, <laughs> parents have to run around their house and move that elf to somewhere else in the house as if it arrived back from the North Pole. Wait and, a second. Sorry to interrupt you. I did not know. I, I knew that he's an elf who watches them. I did not know that they're not allowed to touch him or he dies. Yeah. That's extremely metal. And I like this. Much yeah, more than I did five it's minutes inten- ago. It's it's very intense. It's okay. really meant to keep the kids in <laughs> line. On. So yeah, so parents get some parents will get really into this and get really elaborate with like the cute setups featuring this little elf. Right. Um, and kids get excited about it. And obviously little kids talk to each other at school and whatever about what their elf is up to. So you can imagine that for a subset of parents, it puts a ton of pressure on them through the whole month of December to have to deal with this little elf. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not always everybody's favorite thing to do. Okay. Uh, thank you. First of all, wonderful TED Talk on the history <laughs> and uh, operationalization of Elf on a Shelf. Uh, why is this a legal story, though? What are we talking about exactly? Yeah. So uh, last month, 
a judge devised a solution for this problem. It's a superior court judge in Georgia, Cobb Judicial Circuit Chief Judge Robert Leonard II. He mm-hmm. issued an order banning Elf on the Shelf as a, quote, gift to exhausted parents. Okay. Um, now, do we think that the judge... I guess it's pretty funny, uh, but I do, it, does does he have it out for the elf? Does he not like this tradition? He thinks it's like a surrogate for the nanny state. He doesn't like Big Brother. I don't know. I don't want to put ju- words in his mouth. What do we know? The judge was much nicer about this than I would be. I <laughs> think this tradition is truly absurd and just is nothing but weird. Uh, but the judge went out of his way to tell Law 360 when we reported on this that he actually thinks it's overall a pretty fun Christmas tradition. But in his order, he explained a time when his kids went to school crying after one of his children accused the other one of murdering the elf and causing mm-hmm. it to lose its magic, all because they'd forgotten to move it. So they thought, the kid thought the elf was dead because that's the way the story goes. <laughs> so here's what the judge said of reactions to this order. Quote, I think what resonated with a lot of people was the fear. If you've ever experienced it, waking up at four or five in the morning and think, oh my gosh, did I forget to move the elf? Or even worse, you remember when you hear your kids coming downstairs to go look for him in the morning and you realize you forgot to move him and inevitably they're in tears saying he didn't move. He didn't fly back to Santa. Uh, I mean, I guess that's considerate. Uh, I'm really just kind of getting my feet wet on even how this works. I didn't know about like you got to move him around and that. Oh, it's a whole thing. You're kind of a. You're kind of a victim of the narrative that you construct for your children. (laughs) and And it's like collapsing in on you. You're like. It it's is. like you're trying to keep like continuity straight in like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something. It's hard work to keep the magic alive this time of year. So, yeah. you know, for parents who want an out, um, you know, a judge has banned off on the shelf. You could tell your kids that. But for anybody who loves this tradition and actually thinks it's really cute and fun, <laughs> Judge Leonard did tweet this. If you love your elf, keep your elf. No contempts. This, 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 this smacks of uh, debates over government-run health care, which I don't want to get into right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, that, that's interesting. The other thing I wanted to mention was something that bubbled up actually a couple of weeks ago, which um, revealed me as a profoundly uninformed person about other countries' judicial traditions, uh, garbs more specifically. Uh, in November, the Canadian Supreme Court released their formal portrait of the justices that sit there. Um, and it's, you know, much like the U.S. Supreme Court does this. It's just uh, the nine of them are standing on the, on the steps of the courthouse. And they are in their uh, traditional garbs, their robes. They're not actually robes, the formal attire they wear when they're hearing cases. And in this country, that stuff is pretty modest. The Supreme Court sure. justices just wear black robes. The Canadian Supreme Court wears what can only be described as fire engine red overcoats with plush white accents on the hem of their cuffs, on their sleeves, and on their collar. And Santa not, coats. Not to put too basically. fine a point on it, yes, they look, they all look like some iteration of Santa Claus. And uh, everyone got a kick out of this for a while. I love this so much. I really do. And this is also, I mean, you said it sort of lays bare that you didn't know this about another country's judicial system. But for me, it's saying that we have a sister company called Lawyers Daily in yeah. Canada. Mm-hmm. Why have they not informed their dumb U.S. You know, fellow Lexus employees a little better? I feel like I this is the kind of news that should have been spread around. Those outfits rule. 
Yeah, well, and also, I want to be clear. I saw it, like, circulating around Twitter, and I legitimately thought that they were dressing up for the holidays. <laughs> right, and I was like, right. oh, that's cute. That's, like, a fun thing to do on the court. But no, this is what they wear when they hear cases year I like round, it. not just in December, Amber. I think our, you know, should our justices really flash it up a little? Are we falling behind? I think it's great. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It, well, it honestly called to mind the fact that like in lots of high courts around Europe and all around the world, really, there is a lot more flair going on sure. with the costumes, for lack of a better word. I know they're not costumes um, with the with the garb. And yeah, ours is like pretty staid by comparison. Uh, so I don't know. Um, you know, maybe maybe somewhere down the line, there's lots of talk about Supreme Court reform. I'm sure they're talking about that on the term this week. Maybe I we can get something in there. I think this is an important one. Yeah, they dress like the Easter very- Bunny or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, although speaking of that, the other thing that I learned, and I know we're going a little long, the other thing I learned from this, which I also did not know about the Canadian Supreme Court, is that they have a mascot uh, who also dresses in this outfit. He's a big... Uh, he's, he looks like he's like a Disney World or something. It's a big, sort of big-headed, costumed mascot. He's an owl, and his name is Amicus. Oh, my God. I've never loved Canada more in my entire life. That is <laughs> the best. First if you of don't all, believe me, look it up. <clears throat> if anybody's looking to get me a Christmas present, <laughs> I would love it if someone would find me a plush. A plush. Amicus from Canada. They must exist. I'm sure if they have a mascot, there must be merch, right? I, there's got to be merch. Maybe they got Funko Pops or something. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to have an Amicus. That is just a delight. The wise owl is a fine, uh, a fine steward for uh, for the for the global judicial system. Amicus well, the owl. I'm going to be hoping that's under my Christmas tree this year. But I think that's about all the time we have for today's show. Thanks for being with me today, Alex. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Marco Poggio, and our contributing reporters, Emily Sides, Chris Villani, and Carolina Bolato. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review wherever you're listening. That helps other people find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, and boy, did we pack in a lot today, <laughs> go on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.